Would to God that all men were so constituted that in their minds all these elements of philosophy, mysticism, emotion and of work were equally present in full. That is the ideal, my ideal of a perfect man. Everyone who has only one or two of these elements of character I consider one-sided and this world is almost full of such one-sided men with knowledge of that one road only in which they move and anything else is dangerous and horrible to them. To become harmoniously balanced in all these four directions is my ideal of religion. And this religion is attained by what we in India call yoga, union. To the worker it is union between men and the whole of humanity. To the mystic between his lower and higher self. To the lover union between himself and the god of love. And to the philosopher it is the union of all existence. This is what is meant by yoga. This is a Sanskrit term and these four divisions of yoga have in Sanskrit different names. The man who seeks after this kind of union is called a yogi. The worker is called a karma yogi. He who seeks the union through love is called the bhakti yogi. He who seeks it through mysticism is called the raja yogi. And he who seeks it through philosophy is called the jnana yogi. So this word yogi comprises them all. Now first of all let me take up Raja Yoga. What is this Raja Yoga, this controlling of the mind? In this country you are associating all sorts of hobgoblins with the word Yoga, I am afraid. Therefore, I must start by telling you that it has nothing to do with such things. No one of these Yogas gives up reason. No one of them asks you to be hoodwinked or to deliver your reason into the hands of priests of any type whatsoever. No one of them asks that you should give your allegiance to any superhuman messenger. Each one of them tells you to cling to your reason to hold fast to it. We find in all beings three sorts of instruments of knowledge. The first is instinct, which you find most highly developed in animals. This is the lowest instrument of knowledge. What is the second instrument of knowledge? Reasoning. You find that most highly developed in man. Now in the first place, instinct is an inadequate instrument. To animals, the sphere of action is very limited. And within that limit, instinct acts. When you come to man, you see it is largely developed into reason. The sphere of action also has here become enlarged. Yet, even reason is still very insufficient. Reason can go only a little way and then it stops. It cannot go any further and if you try to push it, the result is helpless confusion. Reason itself becomes unreasonable. Logic becomes argument in a circle. Take for instance, the very basis of our perception, matter and force. What is matter? That which is acted upon by force and force that which acts upon matter. You see the complication? What the logicians call seesaw, one idea depending on the other and this again depending on that. You find a mighty barrier before reason, beyond which reasoning cannot go. Yet it always feels impatient to get into the region of the infinite beyond. This world, this universe, which our senses feel or our mind thinks is but one atom, 
so to say, of the infinite, projected on to the plane of consciousness. And within that narrow limit, defined by the network of consciousness, works our reason and not beyond. Therefore, there must be some other instrument to take us beyond, and that instrument is called inspiration. So, instinct, reason and inspiration are the three instruments of knowledge. Instinct belongs to animals, reason to man, and inspiration to God-men. But in all human beings are to be found, in a more or less developed condition, the germs of all these three instruments of knowledge. To have these mental instruments evolved, the germs must be there. And this must also be remembered that one instrument is a development of the other, and therefore does not contradict it. It is reason that develops into inspiration, and therefore, inspiration does not contradict reason, but fulfills it. Things which reason cannot get at are brought to light by inspiration, and they do not contradict reason. The old man does not contradict the child, but fulfills the child. Therefore, you must always bear in mind that the great danger lies in mistaking the lower form of instrument to be the higher. Many times instinct is presented before the world as inspiration, and then come all the spurious claims for the gift of prophecy. A fool or a semi-lunatic thinks that the confusion going on in his brain is inspiration, and he wants men to follow him. The most contradictory, irrational nonsense that has been preached in the world is simply the instinctive jargon of confused, lunatic brains trying to pass for the language of inspiration. The first test of true teaching must be that the teaching should not contradict reason, and you may see that such is the basis of all these yogas. We take the Raja Yoga, the psychological yoga, the psychological way to union. It is a vast subject, and I can only point out to you now the central idea of this yoga. We have but one method of acquiring knowledge. From the lowest man to the highest yogi, all have to use the same method, and that method is what is called concentration. The chemist who works in his laboratory concentrates all the powers of his mind, brings them into one focus, and throws them on the elements, and the elements stand analyzed, and thus his knowledge comes. The astronomer has also concentrated the powers of his mind and brought them into one focus, and he throws them onto objects through his telescope, and stars and systems roll forward and give up their secrets to him. So it is in every case, with the professor in his chair, the student with his book, with every man who is working to know. You are hearing me, and if my words interest you, your mind will become concentrated on them. And then suppose a clock strikes, you will not hear it on account of this concentration. And the more you are able to concentrate your mind, the better you will understand me. And the more I concentrate my love and powers, the better I shall be able to give expression to what I want to convey to you. The more this power of concentration, the more knowledge is acquired. Because this is the one and only method of acquiring knowledge. Even the lowest shoe black, if he gives more concentration, will black shoes better. The cook with concentration will cook a meal all the better. In making money or in worshipping God, 
or in doing anything. The stronger the power of concentration, the better will that thing be done. This is the one call, the one knock, which opens the gates of nature and lets out floods of light. This, the power of concentration, is the only key to the treasure house of knowledge. The system of Raja Yoga deals almost exclusively with this. In the present state of our body, we are so much distracted and the mind is frittering away its energies upon a hundred sorts of things. As soon as I try to calm my thoughts and concentrate my mind upon any one object of knowledge, thousands of undesired impulses rush into the brain, thousands of thoughts rush into the mind and disturb it. How to check it and bring the mind under control is the whole subject of study in Raja Yoga. Now take Karma Yoga, the attainment of God through work. It is evident that in society there are many persons who seem to be born for some sort of activity or other, whose minds cannot be concentrated on the plane of thought alone, and who have but one idea, concretized in work, visible and tangible. There must be a science for this kind of life too. Each one of us is engaged in some work, but the majority of us fritter away the greater portion of our energies because we do not know the secret of work. Karma Yoga explains this secret and teaches where and how to work, but with this secret we must take into consideration the great objection against work, namely that it causes pain. All misery and pain come from attachment. I want to do work, I want to do good to a human being, and it is ninety to one that that human being whom I have helped will prove ungrateful and go against me, and the result to me is pain. Such things deter mankind from working, and it spoils a good portion of the work and energy of mankind, this fear of pain and misery. Karma Yoga teaches us how to work for work's sake, unattached, without caring who is helped and what for. The Karma Yogi works because it is his nature, because he feels that it is good for him to do so, and he has no object beyond that. His position in this world is that of a giver, and he never cares to receive anything. He knows that he is giving and does not ask for anything in return, and therefore he eludes the grasp of misery. The grasp of pain, whenever it comes, is the result of the reaction of attachment. There is then the Bhakti Yoga for the man of emotional nature, the lover. He wants to love God, he relies upon and uses all sorts of rituals, flowers, incense, beautiful buildings, forms and all such things. Do you mean to say they are wrong? One fact I must tell you. It is good for you to remember, in this country especially, that the world's great spiritual giants have all been produced only by those religious sects which have been in possession of very rich mythology and ritual. All sects that have attempted to worship God without any form or ceremony have crushed without mercy everything that is beautiful and sublime in religion. Their religion is a fanaticism at best, a dry thing. The history of the world is a standing witness to this fact. Therefore, 
Do not decry these rituals and mythologies. Let people have them. Let those who so desire have them. Do not exhibit that unworthy derisive smile and say, They are fools, let them have it. Not so. The greatest men I have seen in my life, the most wonderfully developed in spirituality, have all come through the discipline of these rituals. I do not hold myself worthy to sit at their feet and for me to criticize them. How do I know how these ideas act upon the human mind? Which of them I am to accept and which to reject? We are apt to criticize everything in the world without sufficient warrant. Let people have all the mythology they want with its beautiful inspirations. For you must always bear in mind that emotional natures do not care for abstract definitions of the truth. God to them is something tangible, the only thing that is real. They feel, hear and see him and love him. Let them have their God. Your rationalist seems to them to be like the fool who, when he saw a beautiful statue, wanted to break it to find out of what material it was made. Bhakti Yoga teaches them how to love, without any ulterior motives, loving God and loving the good because it is good to do so, not for going to heaven, nor to get children, wealth or anything else. It teaches them that love itself is the highest recompense of love, that God himself is love. It teaches them to pay all kinds of tribute to God as the creator, the omnipresent, omniscient, almighty ruler, the father and the mother. The highest phrase that can express him, the highest idea that the human mind can conceive of him is that he is the God of love. Wherever there is love, it is he. Wherever there is any love, it is he, the Lord is present there. Where the husband kisses the wife, he is there in the kiss. Where the mother kisses the child, he is there in the kiss. Where friends clasp hands, he, the Lord, is present as the God of love. When a great man loves and wishes to help mankind, he is there giving freely his bounty out of his love to mankind. Wherever the heart expands, he is there manifested. This is what the Bhakti Yoga teaches. We lastly come to the Jnana Yogi, the philosopher, the thinker, he who wants to go beyond the visible. He is the man who is not satisfied with the little things of this world. His idea is to go beyond the daily routine of eating, drinking and so on. Not even the teaching of thousands of books will satisfy him. Not even all the sciences will satisfy him. At the best, they only bring this little world before him. What else will give him satisfaction? Not even myriads of systems of worlds will satisfy him. They are to him but a drop in the ocean of existence. This soul wants to go beyond all that into the very heart of being, by seeing reality as it is, by realizing it, by being it, by becoming one with that universal being. That is the philosopher. To say that God is the father or the mother, the creator of this universe, its protector and guide, is to him quite inadequate to express him. To him, God is the life of his life, the soul of his soul. God is his own self. Nothing else remains which is other than God. All the mortal parts of him become pounded by weighty strokes of philosophy and are brushed away. 
what at last truly remains is God himself. Upon the same tree there are two birds, one on the top, the other below. The one on the top is calm, silent and majestic, immersed in his own glory. The one on the lower branches, eating sweet and bitter fruits by turns, hopping from branch to branch, is becoming happy and miserable by turns. After a time, the lower bird eats an exceptionally bitter fruit and gets disgusted and looks up and sees the other bird, that wondrous one of golden plumage, who eats neither sweet nor bitter fruit, who is neither happy nor miserable, but calm, self-centered and sees nothing beyond herself. The lower bird longs for this condition but soon forgets it and again begins to eat the fruits. In a little while, he eats another exceptionally bitter fruit which makes him feel miserable and he again looks up and tries to get nearer to the upper bird. Once more he forgets and after a time he looks up and so on he goes again and again until he comes very near to the beautiful bird and sees the reflection of light from his plumage playing around his own body and he feels a change and seems to melt away. Still nearer he comes and everything about him melts away and at last he understands this wonderful change. The lower bird was, as it were, only the substantial looking shadow, the reflection of the higher. He himself was in essence the upper bird all the time. This eating of fruits sweet and bitter, this lower little bird weeping and happy by turns was a vain dream. All along the real bird was there above, calm and silent, glorious and majestic, beyond grief, beyond sorrow. The upper bird is God, the Lord of this universe, and the lower bird is the human soul, eating the sweet and bitter fruits of this world. Now and then comes a heavy blow to the soul. For a time, he stops the eating and goes towards the unknown God, and a flood of light comes. He thinks that this world is a vain show. Yet again, the senses drag him down, and he begins, as before, to eat the sweet and bitter fruits of the world. Again, an exceptionally hard blow comes. His heart becomes open again to divine light. Thus, gradually, he approaches God, and as he gets nearer and nearer, he finds his old self melting away. When he has come near enough, he sees that he is no other than God, and he exclaims, He whom I have described to you as the life of this universe, as present in the atom and in suns and moons, he is the basis of our own life, the soul of our soul. Neh, thou art that. That is what this Jnana Yoga teaches. It tells man that he is essentially divine. It shows to mankind the real unity of being and that each one of us is the Lord God himself, manifested on earth. All of us, from the lowest worm that crawls under our feet to the highest beings to whom we look up with wonder and awe, all are manifestations of the same Lord. Lastly, it is imperative that all these various yogas should be carried out in practice. Mere theories about them will not do any good. First, we have to hear about them. Then we have to think about them. We have to reason the thoughts out, impress them on our minds, and we have to meditate on them, realize them, until at last 
they become our whole life no longer will religion remain a bundle of ideas or theories nor an intellectual ascent it will enter into our very self by means of intellectual ascent we may today subscribe to many foolish things and change our minds altogether tomorrow but true religion never changes religion is realization not talk nor doctrine nor theories however beautiful they may be it is being and becoming not hearing or acknowledging it is the whole soul becoming changed into what it believes that is religion